very strange feeling being up here and knowing that you can see that and I can't. I apologize. I'll have to turn around from time to time to look. Well, this morning, I'd like to talk to you about false teachers and false teaching. God's Word warns us of the very real dangers that false teachers present. And if you had some time to sit down with your Bible and look, I think you'd be surprised at how many times, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God warns us about false teachers. Now, you might think that in a well-established, healthy church like ours, a church where we take seriously knowing the Scriptures, the danger of false teachers would be small. I think the evidence of of Scripture suggests just the opposite. The warnings that we see in the New Testament against false teaching are almost always given to well-established churches rather than to new fledgling groups of believers. This morning, I'd like to explore with you what the Word of God says about what false teachers are like, what damage they can do, and how we can protect ourselves from their evil work. False teachers existed in the early church. We know from church history that they've been present ever since. They're all around us today on the outside. If you don't believe that, go to your local bookstore, go into the religious section, and just survey some of the titles on the books there. It will make you sick to your stomach. Even here at CBC, a church that prides itself, and and I don't mean that in a negative way, a church that prides itself on our commitment to God's word, the danger is real for us too. False teachers are a reality, and we need to be prepared to deal with them. Let's take a moment to pray, and then we'll dig into the scriptures. Father, we thank you that you have not left us unwarned, that you have not left us unprepared or unarmed. Enable us as we look into your word today to see the danger, to prepare for it, and to be ready should it strike our church. We pray that your spirit would be our teacher, and we ask it in your son's name. Amen. Well, because there are so many passages in Scripture that deal with the dangers of false teachers, I'm not going to pick a particular one and go deeply into expositing it. Instead, I'm going to read you four major passages on false teachers. And after we've read them, we're going to look at three particular questions. Number one, why are false teachers dangerous? Number two, what are false teachers like? And number three, how can we defend ourselves against false teachers and false teaching? Okay, Hampton, you're ahead of me. That's fine. We're going to look at Jude, Acts 20, 2 Timothy 3, and 2 Peter 2. And before I jump into those passages, let me just remind you that each one of these passages involves a well-seasoned minister of Christ 
speaking to a group of believers who have been around for a while. These are not new believers, and yet these warnings are given to them. Okay, let's go to Jude, verses 3 and 4. Bill read them for us, but let's read them again. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude was probably our Lord Jesus' half-brother. He was one of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. He probably wrote this book late in the first century, around A.D. 79. Now, for perspective, our Lord had died and risen from the dead in A.D. 33. So a lot of time has passed. He says he had planned to write to those he sent this letter to about our common salvation, but some kind of crisis arose and he changed his plan. And the crisis was the danger of false teachers. And so he says to his audience, I want you to contend earnestly for the faith. It's an interesting phrase. It means to actively defend sound doctrine against all threats. My goal today is to encourage myself and to encourage you to take up that charge. I want us to be motivated and ready to contend earnestly for the faith. Now let's go to Acts chapter 20. I'm going to read to you starting in verse 28 and go down to verse 30. This is Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders. He says, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure... Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after themselves. Paul spoke these words to the elders of the Ephesian church on the last time he ever saw them. He was on his way to Jerusalem. It was A.D. 57. He would soon be arrested and sent to Rome. Paul had founded the church in Ephesus. He spent almost three years there teaching them sound doctrine. This was a good, solid church. But even in that good, solid church, Paul knew that false teachers would come, and he warned the elders of the church that they must protect the flock from the attacks of false teachers. He describes them as savage wolves. I don't know whether the expression wolves in sheep's clothing comes from this passage, but it's a perfect picture. Paul says these teachers will arise from among you. He doesn't say attack from outside. He says arise from among you. Now let's go to 2 Timothy 
chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. From such people, turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs was also. Second Timothy was the last letter that Paul wrote. As he wrote it around A.D. 67, this is about 10 years after his warning to the Ephesian elders, he was in a Roman prison. He was waiting the order for his execution. Timothy is now the pastor of the church at Ephesus. Once again, Paul sounds the warning of false teachers. And in that particular passage that we just read, he exposes the character and some of the methods of the false teachers. We'll come back to those. Now let's go to 2 Peter chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3 first, and then we'll move on later in the chapter. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. But there were also false prophets among the people, and there Peter is talking of the Israelites, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. Now let's jump down to verses 18 and 19. Next slide, please. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through licentiousness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. That's very interesting. Peter was also 
very near the end of his life when he wrote this letter. He was probably also imprisoned in Rome awaiting his execution. Probably writing about the same time as Paul wrote 2 Timothy. And Peter, in his last words that we have written, again, sees the need to warn of false teachers. Now, through the Holy Spirit, I'm, I'm sorry, through Peter, the Holy Spirit here is warning us on the deceptiveness, the covetousness, and the immorality of false teachers. Now, there are more passages that speak about false teachers. Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 18 mentions them. Colossians chapter 2 mentions them. 1 Timothy chapter 6 speaks of them, and we'll touch on some of those passages. What I want to do right now is to glean a number of truths from these passages that we've read. And again, I want to focus on three things. Why false teachers are dangerous, what false teachers are like, and how we can defend against them. Okay, let's go forward one. Very good. False teachers are dangerous people. They're not just wrong people. They're dangerous We have a duty to stand against false teachers because of the dangers they present, both to us and to others, both to people inside of the church and people on the outside of the church. As I studied these passages over the last couple of days, four particular dangers came to my mind. There are probably some more, but we'll focus on these four. Okay. Danger number one. False teachers lead people away from the truth and into the bondage of lies. Remember what 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 said. It said, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Back in Acts 20, you don't need to turn back there. Paul had said, and we read this already, among yourselves men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. You see, when false teachers lead people away from the truth, they are necessarily leading them into error and into lies. That's what has to happen. Remember what our Lord Jesus said? He said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. The converse is also true. If you believe lies, you will be placed in bondage. Even the false teachers, and this is rather ironic, and it's almost funny, except it really isn't. Even the false teachers are the prisoners of the lies that they proclaim. 2 Peter 2.19 says, and this is speaking of the false teachers, while they, the false teachers, promise them, the believers who foolishly follow them, liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. False teachers lead people away from the truth and into the bondage of lies. Danger number two. False teachers bring destruction through their heresies. We just read Peter's word. He said that these people will bring in destructive 
heresies. False teaching isn't just wrong. It's destructive. It replaces truth with lies. It replaces understanding and confidence with confusion and consternation. It divides believers. It destroys unity in the church. It undermines the gospel message. You know, we have to remember that God's power works through his word. False teachers bring destruction when they dilute and poison the message of God's word. Next slide. Danger number three. False teachers exploit believers and lead them into sin. Now, Paul says that false teachers tend to target particular groups. They make special efforts to target gullible women. That's the first group. And they like to tell drifting believers, this is the second group, what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3 again, verses 6 and 7. I'm going to read these verses to you. I want you to remember that Paul wrote them almost 2,000 years ago. And as I read them, I want you to ask yourself whether this doesn't sound like the operations manual of some of the sleazy televangelists that you can watch on television. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. I'm not trying to pick on the ladies who like to watch these televangelists. Don't misunderstand me. But the women who are trapped in the teaching of some of these shysters, why is it that they can't come to the knowledge of the truth? It's because they're constantly being bombarded by lies. That's what these guys are doing. But you know, it's not just gullible women that false teachers target. Flip over into 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. Some of you know that my dad was a Unitarian minister. You may not know who the Unitarians are, but they stand against everything that we believe. When I first got saved, I began to realize that my dad was a false teacher. And when the Lord called me to the ministry, this passage was burned into my head. And every time I read it, I think of my father. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And those teachers will turn their ears away from the truth and turn them aside to myths. It's sad, but sometimes believers want to be told lies. They may want something new or exciting, or they may be looking for some rationalization 
or an excuse for a pet sin. And it seems that when believers start to drift, Satan is Johnny on the spot. He's got somebody to step in there and start telling them what their itching ears want to hear. False teachers love to do that. That's why they're often so popular. They tell you, you're all right. Everything you're doing is okay. Don't feel bad. Sometimes we need to be told what we're doing is wrong and that we're not okay. Next slide, please. Danger number four. False teachers bring shame to the name of God. Back to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. Peter says, Many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. See, Peter raises an interesting issue in the previous verse. I don't know if you picked up on it when we first read it. He says, these false teachers will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them. Does that make you nervous? Now, there's an interesting question. Are all false teachers unbelievers? Are some false teachers believers? Where do they stand before God? That's a fascinating question. I'm not going to try to answer it today. I want to focus on how false teachers place us in danger and what we should do about it. And so I'm really more interested in verse 2, where Peter says that when believers follow the lies of false teachers, the way of truth is blasphemed. Make sure you get what Peter is saying. Peter is not saying that false teachers bring shame to the name of God. He's saying that believers who follow false teachers bring shame to the name of God. You remember in Acts chapter 5, Bob was preaching on this not long ago. There was talk of miracles going on in the early church. And Luke says there, Through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were being done among the people. And the believers were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them. And catch this little phrase. But the people esteemed them highly. See, when good things are going on in the church, outsiders know it. When false teachers get hold of us and drag us in the wrong direction, they eventually see it too. And it brings shame to the name of God. You remember how in Titus 2, Paul goes through this long description of what men and women and children and employees and masters should do? And he says at the end of that, if you do these things, you will adorn the doctrine of God. You'll make the gospel attractive. You'll make people want to know who this guy is, Jesus Christ, who makes you different and makes you a blessing to have around. See, when false teachers lead believers into error, just the exact opposite happens. They make the gospel look bad. They bring shame to the name of Christ. In Peter's words, 
It brings blasph- it blasphemes the way. We don't want to shame the name of God. Now, if we had more time, I think we could probably locate more dangers that false teachers bring. But I think the ones that we've seen are enough to show us that false teachers hurt believers, that's in the church, that they hinder the spread of the gospel outside of the church, and they shame the name of the God that we serve. Put it another way, false teachers can have an effect that goes everywhere. Therefore, as both Paul and Jude have said, it's our duty to expose and oppose false teachers and their teaching. As Jude says, we must contend for the faith. All right, let's go to the next slide. What are false teachers like? How can we identify them? Well, the Bible gives us a number of characteristics that will help us to discern and guard against them. And six characteristics jump out at me. Now, the first one is that their approach is deceptive and invasive. You're doing a great job up there. Thank you. False teachers are sneaky. They like to attack from within. Jude said that certain men have crept in unnoticed. Paul said in Acts 20 that from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. False teachers don't usually make a frontal attack. They don't knock on the door of the church and say, I've got a new doctrine for you. They slip in, they participate in worship, they hang around for a while, they may join a ministry group, they may teach Sunday school. And when the time is right, when they think they have a hearing and everybody thinks that they're one of us, that's when they make their attack. They also target the weak. We saw that in 2 Timothy. They attack gullible women. They target believers who may be slipping into sin and are looking for a rationalization for that sin. They also exploit weak believers and appeal to the sinful desires of believers who are beginning to stray. Now, in a way, that's a recap of what I just said. But listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11.3 that bears on this issue. He says, I fear somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve, that your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. False teachers sneak in. They're deceptive. They're invasive. That's one of their strategies. All right, second characteristic. Their character is ungodly, And since I wrote that, I would add unbalanced. This is really fascinating because it works both ways. See, some false teachers will eventually openly advocate a sinful lifestyle, and then there are other false teachers who will advocate a very rigid, ascetic lifestyle. You know what I mean by ascetic? You can't enjoy the good things of life. 
you know, husbands and wives should not enjoy their physical relationship because that's not really godly. You know, it's better for you to live on simple food than to enjoy good food. That's asceticism. Licentiousness is over here saying, do whatever you want. It's okay. Now, it's really interesting. Both types are described in Scripture. Jude says that in verse 16, these are murderers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts. That's on the licentious end. Peter says, while they promise liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. So here we have people on the licentious end, but that's not the only kind of false teacher there is. Paul speaks of ascetic false teachers. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, he describes them like this. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Now catch this. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. You notice how the character of of false teachers can actually fall on both ends of the spectrum. They can be way over here on the licentious end, or they can be over here on the ascetic end. Both of these are wrong. Think about Jesus. Jesus was not an ascetic, and he certainly wasn't licentious. Jesus avoided the sins of the flesh, but you know what? He gladly enjoyed the good pleasures of life which the Father has made available to us. He did. He enjoyed good food. He enjoyed good wine. He enjoyed laughter and human fellowship and all those things. The false teachers are on both ends in the wrong place. Jesus is in the middle. He's the kind of example that we should be following. Okay, characteristic number three. The doctrines of false teachers are distractions, distortions, and denials. You like the three Ds? I worked really hard on this. False teachers often like to distract rather than openly opposing the truth. Now, Paul warns us of this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 and verse 18. In 2.8, he says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy, empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. And then in verse 18, he says, Let no one defraud you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind. There are some interesting, difficult things of Scripture that may be worth thinking about, but that's not where our focus should be. And often false teachers start by distracting people and leading them off into the things that don't really matter. Genealogies, angels, what kind of food you should eat. And pretty soon they lead you somewhere else. False teachers also twist and distort 
the truth. Jude said in verse 4 that they turn the grace of God into licentiousness. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul warned that false teachers proclaim a false gospel. He said, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to another gospel. They twist and distort the truth. Well, they distract, they distort, and sometimes they deny the truth. Back to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. Paul said, As Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so do these men also resist the truth. When false teachers become bold, they'll come right out and say, No, that's not what Scripture teaches, even though we know that it is. Or vice versa. Paul notes in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, that false teachers do sometimes come right out now let me and make a denial. Let me read this to you. 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 and 4. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Sometimes they'll openly deny the truth. Characteristic number four, they delight in argument and esoterica. Don't you like that word, esoterica? Esoteric things, the little picayune details that really aren't important you know, like, are angels male and female? Um, stuff like that. You know, false teachers love to argue about unimportant things because they crave attention. This is one of their motivations. Uh, we just read that passage from 1 Timothy chapter 6, and that's exactly what Paul said. They like to argue about little picayune details. We read that passage in Colossians 2 that says they're all excited and all puffed up and they want to tell you all about angels. Who cares? Those things are esoterica. They're not really that important. It's okay to study them, but that's not where our focus should be. Characteristic number six. This is a little bit redundant. as It ties in with the dangers that we saw earlier But I want to say it again. False teachers appeal to the believer's weaknesses. We've already seen that one, so I'm going to move on to number six. The motivations of false teachers are worldly. Think about some of the motivations that we've seen already. False teachers are motivated by the desire for attention. They're motivated by the love of argumentation. They're motivated by sensuality, by lust, by greed, by the love of money. None of those motivations is godly. All of them are worldly. So let's recap. What are false teachers like? Their approach is deceptive and invasive. 
Their character is ungodly, often on opposite ends of the spectrum. Their doctrines are distractions, distortions, and denials. Their delight is in argument and esoterica. Their appeal is to the Christian's weakness, and their motivations are worldly. All right, let's go on to the next slide. Let's get down to practical matters. False teachers are dangerous. How do we defend ourselves and others against them? I would submit to you that we need to be both vigilant and sober. When I say vigilant, I mean be always on our guard. When I say sober, I mean don't jump to conclusions or act rashly. Now, next slide. Positively, this means we must be discerning and alert. Church leaders, and especially those who are trained in the word, are the first line of defense against false teachers. But it's not just church leaders who have a responsibility to defend against false doctrine. Every believer who exercises authority over or cares for another person has a duty to defend against false teachers. This means you Sunday school teachers. This means you Awana leaders. This means you youth pastors. This means you people who are involved in church outreach. This means you parents. This means you older brothers and sisters. Next. This means you, whoever you are. It's the duty of all of us to contend earnestly for the faith. Now, let me state the obvious before I go on. The key to defending against false teachers is to know God's word. You know, when they train bank tellers to identify counterfeit bills, they never give them a counterfeit bill. They just give them lots of real money, new money, old money, worn out money, fresh money, and they get to know it so well that you put a false bill in their hands and they don't even need to look at it. They can feel that it's phony. The same should be true of us. If we know the word, when someone comes along with something that's false, we're not going to buy it. All right, negatively. Next slide. This means, man, you're good. This means we must not falsely accuse or be unnecessarily critical of others. I don't want us to be on a perpetual witch hunt. That is not my goal. We need to be sober in our vigilance. Click. The key here is discerning between orthodoxy and heresy on one hand and unconventional teaching on the other. Go ahead. You gotta get this straight. Go. Orthodoxy and heresy. Go. Heresy is a deliberate denial of revealed truth coupled with the acceptance of error. Go. Orthodoxy means right belief. It's based on the clear teaching of Scripture, and it focuses, get this, it focuses on fundamental truths, not peripheral issues. The virgin birth is a fundamental of the faith. Whether or not Joseph was married before he married Mary is not. Now, go forward. 
Get this, people. This is really important. We must remember that unconventional teaching is not necessarily heretical. We have to evaluate teaching carefully before we condemn it. And we've got to make sure and we've got to take care that we understand what somebody is saying before we jump to the conclusion that is unconventional or heretical. You know, for example... I'll bet you there are a number of people in this room who would agree with me that the evidence of Scripture suggests that we're going to be vegetarians in the eternal stake. In, uh, that was an interesting slip, wasn't it? In the, in the eternal state. I was thinking of Gary, because I'm sure he's sitting there saying, no. See, I think because Adam and Eve were originally given only plants to eat, that in the eternal state we probably will only eat plants. Now, suppose someone comes along and says, no, we're going to eat steak in the eternal state. Would that be heresy? No. (laughs) Keith is glad about that. He's glad it's not heresy. That is not a denial of any clear or fundamental teaching of Scripture. Second example. Our understanding of Scripture is clearly that hell is eternal. Suppose someone were to come along and say, no, hell isn't eternal. Those who are cast in the lake of fire vaporize, they go out of existence. There's no eternal punishment. That doctrine, which is becoming very popular in the evangelical church today, is called annihilationism, the idea that people will be annihilated in the lake of fire. A very well-known teacher who we respect highly, John Stott, has become an annihilationist. I believe he is guilty of false teaching because he is denied a fundamental of the faith. It's important that we not overreact when we think we hear false teaching in the church. It's absolutely vital that we carefully evaluate what someone is teaching before we make a conclusion that he is either a false teacher or that his teaching is false. Remember, we need to be vigilant and sober. We're going to do a lot of damage if we accuse somebody of false teaching who is not, in fact, guilty of it. Okay, next slide. What do we do when we discover true false teaching? Sorry, I probably should have said truly false teaching. Exactly how we should respond will depend on the situation, the response of the false teacher, and above all, the judgment of our elders. In some cases, go ahead, especially if the false teacher has gotten a wide hearing, it may be necessary to explain to the body what the false teaching was and to correct it. Next slide. If necessary, it may be important to let the body know who the person is who has been making false teaching. And thirdly, until the false teacher has been restored to orthodoxy and has repented of what he's done, the false teacher should be disciplined. That means he should be excluded from the privileges of the body and not allowed to exercise authority in the body, obviously including teaching. Now, let me just warn you, and I know this from personal experience in another place, 
that there's a risk involved when you take a stand against false teachers and false teaching. You may be accused of being unloving. But I submit to you that the loving thing to do is to protect the flock, not to leave the false teacher alone. Paul gives us an exhortation in, of all places, you'll be surprised, the book of Ephesians that I think is very important here. Let me paraphrase it for you. He says, It's God's goal that we should no longer be children tossed about to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, and the cunning craftiness by which they lie in wait to deceive. Instead, we must... Speak the truth in love. You catch that? How many times do we yank this thing, speak the truth in love, out of context? Did you ever realize that it was spoken with regard to dealing with false teaching? It's unloving not to deal with false teachers. It's unloving to the body, which is at danger. It's unloving to the unbelievers out there who might hear a false gospel. And ultimately, it's unloving even to the false teacher because hopefully he can be corrected and brought back to the truth. So I submit to you that when false teachers arise in our midst, to allow them to go on unopposed is a most unloving thing to do. And I'm very happy to tell you, and I know this, that our elders take the issue of protecting our body from false teaching very seriously. Remember these words from Hebrews chapter 13? The writer there says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive for, and catch this, for they watch out for your souls. Guarding against false teaching is one of the ways in which they do that. Well, I hope that this study has alerted you to the danger of false teachers. I'm just about done. I don't want you to go away in fear. We need to remember that the false teachers are not going to ultimately triumph. They can do a lot of damage, but they are not going to win in the end. Listen to these words from the book of Isaiah. Our Lord has a promise for us. He says, for as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and they do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it will accomplish what I please and it will prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Despite the efforts of false teachers, God's word will triumph as we contend earnestly for the faith. Let's do so with that confidence in mind. Let's pray. Father, how good it is that you have left us with a witness in the form of your word to the truth, with a standard, the source of all the revelation that we need. 
Thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit to help us understand it. Thank you that you've put us in a body that we may study it together and seek the truth and proclaim it. Father, we do not want to be guilty of allowing false teachers to go unopposed should they arise among us. Grant us the courage to deal with them if that happens. Grant that we may be vigilant and sober. Grant that according to your command, we will be faithful to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We pray this through your Son. Amen.